Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning, church. My name's John. It's so good to be back with you this morning to our our church family. Man, it's great to be here. Um, Like Josh said, if you're a visitor, thank you for for being with us this morning. Um, Pastor Dave is out of town this week, and um, so I am filling in this morning. We're taking a little break from our series in the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at this great text, Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Uh, before we do that, let me, let me pray uh, as we hear God's word this morning. Our Father and our God, we, we thank you that we can gather together this morning. Lord, that you have given us your holy word, that you have spoken to us in your word. And Father, this morning we want to hear you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and enable us to, to hear you speak and take it to heart. So, Lord, would you, would you work in each of our hearts this morning, and we pray these things in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I, I recently heard someone say, we live with the often unspoken understanding that the end gives final shape or the final shape to all things. For all the drama of a good sporting match, the game is ultimately shaped by the end and who comes out on top. We say things like, all's well that ends well, right? It'll all be worth it in the end. He who laughs last, laughs the loudest. And we also say, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. Each of these familiar sayings understand that the end gives the final shape to all things. God's story contained in the Bible is the true story of the world. It's a story in four acts, creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. It's a story that ends in life. It's a story of hope. The main story of our culture is called secularism. It's a story... It's a story that says that what's real is only what we can see and touch and taste and measure. It's a story that ultimately ends in death. It's a story of despair. And if you understand the main story behind our culture, it makes sense of the widespread fear and anger and anxiety that we've experienced the last few years. The end of each of these stories gives final shape to the lives of those living in these stories. So the question for each of us this morning is, which story are you living in? You can tell which story you're living in by how the story impacts your everyday behavior and expectations. 
In Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, the true story of God ends with God's declaration, I am making all things new. And the question for each of us this morning is, how does that end shape our everyday behavior and expectations? Honestly. Before we look at our passage, some brief context. The book's title, Revelation, means that which is revealed. And what's primarily revealed in the book of Revelation is the resurrected king, Jesus Christ. As the book opens, the Apostle John is given a revelation of Jesus. He sees the risen and resurrected King, Jesus Christ, and his hair is white like wool. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet are like polished bronze, and his voice is like the roar of many waters. You don't want to mess with this Jesus. And here's the thing about the book of Revelation Revelation is given not to help us figure out if the Russian invasion of Ukraine means Jesus is coming. Rather, this revelation is given to comfort and encourage a struggling and suffering church. John writes to remind the churches of his day that Jesus is the conquering king, that he's sovereign over human history, and that he will come again to make all things new. This revelation is given to the church then and the church today for hope and encouragement. Revelation is structured as a series of repeated visions. The final cycle, uh, each, each cycle gives a slightly different perspective and covers the time roughly between Jesus' first and second coming. The final cycle is found in chapters 20 through 22. In chapter 20, we read of final judgment. The book of deeds and the book of life, these books are opened. And those whose, name, whose names are not written in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire, which is called the second death. This awful picture of eternal death is contrasted with the eternal life enjoyed by those whose names are written in the book of life, and that's chapters 21 through 22. As we look at Revelation 21, one through four, the main idea is that God will make all things new. And with that, let's take a look at verses one through four. In verses one through four, God, uh, John sees two things and he hears two things. John sees two things and he hears two things. First, We'll look at what John sees. In verse 1, John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. John sees a new world. And the reason he sees a new universe is that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. In 2 Peter 3, we're told that the old world will pass away through fire. Likely, it's a fire not of destruction, but a fire of purification, a fire that renews this world, a fire that transforms this world into a new kind of world, a new world that is both different and similar to this world, something like how our resurrection bodies will be uh, both different and similar. 
Our resurrection bodies will be transformed from perishable, dishonorable, and weak to imperishable, uh, glorious, and powerful bodies, yet they're still our bodies. In a similar way, this decaying and corrupted world will be transformed into a glorious and imperishable world. This earth will be made new and all the beauty and goodness of it enhanced. That means that our future existence is not a disembodied and unearthly existence. What John sees here in Revelation is the consummation of what God promised back in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah, God spoke and said, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. God will make a new world. Isaiah goes on to describe this new heaven and earth in very physical terms. He says, build houses, plant vineyards, work. You know, wolves will graze with lambs. Resurrected physical bodies living in a new physical earth is very different from popular views of an afterlife where we float on the clouds and play harps. Chris Morphew in his book, What Happens When We Die, asks us to imagine you're hanging out at home one day when suddenly there's a knock on the door. You open it and find your friend standing there with this ridiculous grin on her face, like she's got some incredible news she's bursting to share. Hey, you say, what's up? But at first she's so excited that all she can do is beam at you. And after a long silence, you finally lose patience and you say, what? What's going on? I'm going to the greatest place in the universe she says, and I want you to come with me. Oh, okay, great, you say. Where are we going? The words come out in a gasp, like the very thought of it makes her short of breath. The waiting room at the dentist. (laughs) Wait, what? Why? Is there something wrong with your teeth? What do you mean? She tilts her head, confused. Why would there be something wrong with my teeth? Well, isn't that why most people go to the dentist? I'm not going to the dentist, she says. I'm going to the waiting room. Why? Because it's wonderful, she says, voice choking up. It's all clean and sparkly and shiny, and the people who work there wear these cool white outfits, and all day you get to just sit around thinking, isn't this great? I can't believe I'm in the waiting room at the dentist. (laughs) A single joyful tear streams down her cheek, and she says, doesn't that sound amazing? (laughs) Now, does that sound amazing to you? Of course not. The point is, our vision of God's new world is often so anemic. What John sees is the restoration of the world. The physical world set free from corruption and decay. God reveals this immense vision 
of a new world to give you hope and encouragement to shape your everyday behavior and expectations. So first, John sees a new world. Well, what else does John see? We find it in verse 2. John says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. John sees a new city. Earthly Jerusalem was the city where God dwelt with his people before its destruction in 586 B.C. Yet God promised to create a new Jerusalem, a heavenly city comprised of people who trust in God's coming servant as the prophet Isaiah revealed. Isaiah 52, God speaks to his people then and says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, which is just another word for Jerusalem. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Isaiah is calling the readers of his day to wake up and trust in the Lord. He will provide the beautiful garments of salvation to be received by faith. And throughout history, God is calling people to faith and gathering those people to himself who are citizens of a new city. The, writers of Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says something similar. He says, by faith, the Old Testament saints were looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And through faith in Jesus, every believer now, currently, is referred to as a citizen of heaven. And what happens in this vision is now John sees the revealing of the sons of God. He sees this, this, this city, these people, God's people, coming down out of heaven from God to the new earth, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. God uses this imagery of marriage to describe his relationship with his people. God designed marriage so that a husband and wife would enjoy such an intimate relationship that the two would become as one. And we're told that if anyone is in Christ, you, you are a new creation. You are now in a relationship with God so intimate that the best way it can be pictured is marriage. You are the bride of Christ is what the New Testament says. And this imagery also speaks to how God views those who are in Christ, a bride beautifully adorned or dressed. I mean, most of you have been to a wedding, right? You've seen the bride beautifully, wonderfully dressed. That's how God sees his people. In Revelation 21, we read this, the new city is, is described as having the glory of God. His radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper as clear as crystal. God reveals to John this new city, this people of God, his bride who is breathtakingly beautiful. Now I suspect most of us this morning don't feel like Jesus' beautiful bride. I certainly don't feel like Jesus' beautiful bride, especially if you're a guy, right? You don't feel like Jesus' beautiful bride. But here's the thing. Living in God's story means learning to live out of this new identity. You are now a citizen 
of this new city. You are now the beloved bride of Christ. That's your core identity. That's who you are most deeply. The problem is we all suffer from identity amnesia. We forget about our identity in Jesus and instead try to establish our identity through our own performance. If we perform well, right, we think we're a good person. If we perform badly, we think we're a bad person. Here's the thing. The good news of Jesus gets us off the performance treadmill. He gives us a new identity, but we quickly forget and jump back on the treadmill. So in the Christian life, you must constantly remind yourself of who you are in God's story. One way is through prayer. I've recently read a book on prayer that's been very helpful, and it's taught me to pray every morning and throughout the day something like this. Father, at my core, I am not a success or a failure. I am not a wealthy person or a poor person. I am not someone who needs to be honored. At my core, I'm not a good husband or a bad husband. I'm not a good pastor or a bad pastor. I'm not a good father or a bad father or a good friend or a bad friend. No. At my core, I am a loved child of God. I've been clothed in Christ's righteousness with full pardon from guilt and full acceptance from God. God calls me his beloved. That's who I truly am. It's not long before that quickly turns and I get back on the performance treadmill. And so I constantly go back to that and remind myself of who I am in God's true story. Learning to live out of your identity in Christ doesn't happen automatically. If I'm being honest, it's really hard work. It requires we stop listening to the stories we tell ourselves and start listening to God's story, to who God says we are. Well, so far, John has seen two things, right? He's seen a new world and a new city. And next, John hears two things, two things that highlight aspects of this new world and this new city. The first thing John hears is found in verse 3. John says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. John hears that God will make a new intimacy with his people. It's a voice that speaks authoritatively from the throne. It's a voice that should tell us, listen up. God and man will be together in new intimacy, heaven and earth reunited. It's the moment to which all redemptive history points. I've heard it said like this, at the beginning of Genesis, sin and death enter the world and God banishes humans from his presence. At the end of Revelation, God banishes sin and destroys death and lives among his people. Two bookends. 
it's hard for us to understand how different this life will be, how different that life will be. In a sense, you can't miss what you never had. But the fact that nothing in this world satisfies is a clue that we were made for another world, a world where God and man dwell together. And that's what our first parents had. They had God's visible presence. God walked with them in the garden. But because of rebellion, humanity lost God's presence. But the whole story of the Bible is that God wants to walk with his people on the earth again. He began his rescue mission by dwelling in a tabernacle with his people Israel. In the book of Leviticus, he says this, he promises, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. God began his rescue mission by dwelling in a tabernacle with the people of Israel. And yet, only Jewish priests could enter the holy place. And only the high priest could enter the most holy place once a year. Though God dwelt with his people Israel, access was severely limited. Sinful humans could not be in God's presence lest they die. But as redemptive history progressed, the prophet Ezekiel speaks of a new covenant with greater access and greater intimacy. Ezekiel says it this way, God's dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people forevermore. Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. Through his life, death, and resurrection, anyone, Jew or Gentile, Anyone who trusts Jesus is welcomed into God's presence. A new covenant where the Holy Spirit is given as a guarantee and a foretaste of greater intimacy to come. And this new covenant is consummated when God makes a new intimacy with his people. John says it like this in another letter. Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. God's story ends with you seeing Jesus face to face. Now you walk by faith, then you will have sight. Now you see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Charles Spurgeon once said that it's one of the most natural desires in the world that when we hear of someone great, we want to see their person. When I was a kid, I remember standing in line for hours to see the actor who played Fonzie on the TV show Happy Days. And I mean, I, I saw him for like three seconds. As a teen, I remember paying my hard-earned money and standing in line for hours to see my favorite bands in concert. As a college student, I remember driving from Butte, Montana to Seattle to see, for the first time, my beloved Seahawks play. Oh, by the way, they beat the New York Giants that day. The point is, we want to see. We want to see 
And God says that we will see him. He will make a new intimacy with his people. But here's the thing. In Jesus, God welcomes us into his presence now. Learning to live, learning to be in God's presence now is part of living in God's story. And honestly, it's part of finding true rest. Again, just one suggestion, one way to cultivate God's presence is through prayer. Same book, I'm learning to to be in God's presence. I'm learning to pray every morning something like this. Father, I want to be with you today. I want to be with you before anything else. Here I am. I want to be with you. In my life, I'm learning not to use God so that my life, so that I can have my life the way I want it. I'm learning to be with God no matter what he has planned for me. So I pray that first thing in the morning and invariably in two seconds, my heart goes right back to worrying about what I'm doing that day, worrying about bills, worrying about all kinds of different things. And so right away what I do next is, again, I say, John, stop. That's not the way. Father, here I am again. I present myself to you again. I want to be with you in this. I want to be with you today in everything that you have for me. So John has seen a new world. He's seen a new city. And now John hears about this new intimacy with God. And what else does John hear? One more thing in verse 4. John hears this. He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. John hears that God will make a new human experience. A new human experience. God will wipe away every tear. And the implication is that we will have tears until that day, until God finally wipes them away. And it's such an important point. God never promises us no tears in this life. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus gives the pattern for our lives. Suffering now, glory later. First the cross, then the crown. If you hear a preacher or a teacher tell you that God promises you health and wealth now, you need to run. Don't believe it. We will have tears until the former things have passed away, until God makes a new human experience. When it comes to movies, my wife and I have very different tastes. She likes movies with happy endings, right? And I fancy myself more of a movie sophisticate. (laughs) And I like movies that are more like real life, you know, movies that don't necessarily have a happy ending. But it turns out I'm wrong and she's right. Big shock kind of the the story of our marriage. I learned that I'm wrong and she's right. 
See, in the true story of life, in God's story, there is a happy ending. For those in Christ, life, joy, and love have the final word. Tears, death, mourning, crying, and pain will end because God promises to make a new human experience. If you're, not, if you're like me, you might be thinking this morning, can this really be true? Is this really true? I would encourage you to be honest with God and with yourself about your doubts as we read this passage. Be honest about your doubts. And then I would also encourage you to doubt your doubts. I mean, doubt your doubts. What does that look like? Well, you can doubt your doubts by asking yourself, why does my heart long for life after death? Why do the stories that we love most have happy endings? Why do we desire all these rebooted worlds of movie franchises, right? We love reboots of, of the worlds of movie franchises. Why is all that? I mean, maybe God really has put eternity in our hearts. And here's the thing. In the final analysis, it all comes down to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There's no good news. The Apostle Paul said it like this. If in Christ, we have hope for this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. But Paul had seen the risen Christ, and he knew that in the resurrection, all God's promises of a new world, a new city, a new intimacy, and a new human experience were guaranteed to follow. Church family, we live in a world marked by anxiety, fear, anger, exhaustion, alienation, indifference. And given how the story of secularism ends, it's, it's really not hard to see why that's the case. But God invites us to live in a different story the true story of the world, a story where God will make all things new. God reveals how the story ends to give his people hope and encouragement. And what I'm not saying is that means we're always happy clappy, right? That's not what that means. We live in a fallen world, so it's right for us to grieve and lament. It's right for us to do that. We live currently in a fallen world, but in God's story, we learn to grieve with hope. God reveals that he will make all things new so that it shapes our lives, so that it impacts our everyday behavior and expectations. And really, what could be more radical in our culture than to be a people marked by hope? Let's pray.